current discussions have focused on sexual violence at home, at work, and everywhere in between. Even if it's not happening to you, there's a high likelihood that it's happening or has happened to someone you know. Movements like Me Too, high profile cases, and policy change are shaping a more nuanced understanding of sexual violence. We speak with three advocates about this critical moment and what needs to come next. So I think the the, the hashtag and the terminology that has been coined basically is an, a, a tool of empowerment for women to acknowledge and say, you're not alone, it happens to all of us, and this is how common and rampant it is, which is a good conversation to be had, an important conversation to be had. Unfortunately, some of the marginalized communities that I work with, they don't have the same access to say that. That's Deepa Matu, legal director of the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, which focuses on providing counseling, legal representation, and language interpretation for those who self-identify as a woman. Deepa brings an intersectional approach to her work with sexual assault survivors. One of the things she helped us understand is that Me Too is a significant cultural moment in terms of highlighting the severity of the issue. But we need to be mindful about representation. One of the one of the fear I have in all this is that some of the voices of the women who are most marginalized don't get heard. And we forget that gender-based violence and violence against women is a much larger, broader issue, and it needs attention all the time. We kind of miss the point in this whole discussion is voices which were already talking about it for many years, which is the voices of the uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. They have been talking about sexual assaults and the murders and, and the missing women for a very long time. Um, and, and I know that there is an inquiry going on, but again, that when we talk about one particular type of violence against women issue, we sometimes silo it and not think about that this is all continuum of the one big problem which stems out of misogyny and patriarchy, and we shouldn't be siloing these issues because when we silos, silo them, then we are only talking about one particular kind of population, and that's the fear of telling that one story. Having worked with clients from immigrant and non-status communities, Deepa is aware that their experiences of violence are not isolated, but rather experienced on a continuum that can inhibit access to justice. Deepa notes that legal professionals have a role to play in terms of managing expectations and supporting navigation through the system. Their experience of violence is at times on a continuum. Right, so she might be experiencing sexual assault, but if if it is coming in from an intimate partner situation, she's also experiencing intimate partner violence. So thinking about not having a job, coming from a country where she she doesn't probably trust any systems because of what she has experienced before, Um, being in a situation where she'll have to fight for the custody of the children, thinking about that she's now uh, interacting with the police while being non-status and she doesn't know how that that is going to play out in her life. So she has mistrust of the authorities to begin with. There is going to be a criminal case if the charges are, are taken forward. So there will be a criminal case, there will be a family law case, and she'll have to be dealing with the immigration situation. She also might be facing racism and xenophobia from 
the fact for the fact that she comes from somewhere else and she doesn't necessarily understand the ways of life and that makes her experience of violence way more complex and layered for her to navigate how do we shift the focus from a reactive to a preventative approach and how do we get at those underlying systemic factors that are kind of pushing us to focus on the micro instead of of the macro so these reactions keep on coming when situations happen but what is missing in this whole process that we are not able to prevent from the women from these incidents of violence or if, uh, for that matter how are we not able to prevent this violence to happen against uh, LGBTQ community or in some rare cases also against men itself right like how why is there this toxic masculinity which is emerging its head um, in sometimes big waves are happening around it every few years why this why is system systemic change not happening and um, uh, speaking from my hat of uh, being a mother as well i feel like as unless and until we will actually put concerted effort into talking about gender roles and talking about the the whole concept of consent from right from the kindergarten to the university this paradigm shift won't happen I also truly believe the paradigm shift won't happen unless and until we also start focusing on those potential perpetrators and and trying to see what is that could have been fixed in this story there needs to be a little bit research on where did the system fail what's what fixing of system do we need when these situations of violence are emerging in around us and the third piece of that is um i think trying to bring inclusive dialogues and bring inclusive voices into this education and awareness and making sure that we are including men women trans folks lgbtq community indigenous communities immigrant communities refugee women that and and mainstream folks that we are actually having a very inclusive understanding of that because unless and until we do that and unless and until we make sure that everyone's um issues and concerns are brought on the table while we are making changes the change won't happen so if you're from a black community or from a muslim community and you're already being surveyed by the police will they be a safe place for you to go to tell that someone's hurt you or if you're a person with disability and the person that is harming you is your personal support worker where do you go or who do you tell that will believe you or if you're sexually assaulted by someone in a political position and you're their staff how difficult it is for you to speak out because your whole livelihood is wrapped around this politician we are in a time where we need to really challenge and interrogate what we've been selling people as justice and open up that conversation and also talk about who gets to get justice and the scraps that some of us are allowed to have Farakhan's advocacy in the sexual violence community spans the academic, policy and justice sectors. She is a member of the Gender Equality Advisory Council for the G7 and the manager of Ryerson University's Consent Comes First Office of Sexual Violence Support and Education. This is where she supports community members affected by sexual violence. Unprecedented before was live tweeting of a lot of course like cases. So 
An example can be not just the Gomeshi case, but that was a huge one in terms of lie tweeting. That was, I think, one of the first large-scale Canadian sexual assault trials we saw live tweeted. What did that feel for a survivor? How many of us have been put on a public space to do that? And, you know, even in the courtroom when it isn't live tweeted, you sometimes see people come in and out of that courtroom while they're testifying. I've seen classrooms come in and come out, right? I, I've seen moments where it, they say, you know, I don't want my parents in the room because I don't want to know this. But then the newspaper prints a whole story. And what role does journalism have to play in kind of shifting this discourse uh, to be more survivor-centered? So we need to also make law more accessible to folks. And so part of that is working with journalists to to speak about what the process is, to understand what it is, so that you don't feel like it's something separated from you. I think a part of it too is that that journalists can play a part in not only explaining how the process looks like and what it feels like, but what are the barriers to people going forward and how can we address them? And really bringing in community partners and experts around it to really have a conversation about how do we report in a way that is going to be survivor-centered, but also fair. There's another thing too, right? Like we want to be fair, and I know there's defense lawyers that might be listening and, and folks that are worried about getting due process to happen. And I think that's the thing. We want due process to happen across the board. We want people to have that. That doesn't mean that you can't be trauma-informed or survivor-centered when you have due process. And I think that's an important piece. So doing those explainers. There was a great article in Chatelaine a couple weeks ago about what to do if you were sexually harassed in the workplace. Just explaining that and making it in plain language and accessible. Farah supports survivors by helping them engage with mainstream media, lobby policymakers, and build campaigns to address access to justice barriers. Well, one of the first things that we do when someone comes into our office and starts speaking to the idea of, of wanting to do something after they were sexually assaulted, so be it report or confront the person, lots of different things, we always talk about, I want you to, to really think about what does justice look like to you? And that may seem like a simple question if you work in the legal community, but for someone who has been sexually assaulted, they have been fed, just like all of us, what justice looks like through the media, through their parents, through their communities. And saying to someone, okay, what does justice look like for you? And opening up the opportunity to say, okay, it's not always calling the police, or it is going through the criminal justice system, but testifying is a form of justice for you. It is a huge deal when you say out loud that you were sexually assaulted, because that is a huge hurdle in of itself. So many times we are told to be quiet, to not say anything, to protect the abuser, that he was a nice person, she was a good friend, she was your best coach, he was a really good friend of the family, he's an upstanding community member, she was the best girlfriend you ever had. It is really hard to even say out loud to yourself, to admit to yourself that sexual violence has occurred. So a part of the work now is opening up and and really celebrating those milestones and seeing lots of things as justice and moving past this idea that a guilty verdict is an ultimate win because it is so rare. One of the biggest challenges I've heard from investigators as well as from prosecutors is the time it takes for a victim to come forward. 
And what ends up happening is that no matter how much they believe that person, how much they want to help, the challenge comes, if you look at it, is that at that point, they are investigating a historical act. On average, it takes somebody approximately 11 months to come forward. Memories are lost. Things are forgotten. They're very much challenged at that point to build an evidence-based prosecution. And so what we would hope to do is help prosecutors would then build with their case theory and help them build an actually evidence-based prosecution. So we move away from victim behaviors, but look at it as offender actions. Lucretia Spaniello is the founder and CEO of Vesta, a trauma-informed chatbot designed to put survivors of sexual violence at the center of the investigative and legal process. It is a platform that enables the survivor to take control of their story and is created with expertise from clinical psychologists, law enforcement, and legal experts. Well, Vesta is a platform to enable survivors of sexual assault or harassment to document and report um, their cases. So on the front end for the survivors, it's actually an AI-powered chatbot that helps them tell their story in their own words, at their own pace, anonymously and confidentially, until they're ready to report. If they are ready to report and with their consent, we will then help support and facilitate the reporting process for them. According to the Canadian Women's Foundation, sexual assault is the only violent crime in Canada that is not declining. In addition, the Globe and Mail's recent Unfounded series, led by journalist Robin Doolittle, found that one out of every five sexual assault reports are deemed unfounded, meaning police conclude that the crime didn't happen. This is the context that has informed Vesta's development. It does not replace reporting, but rather supports the reporting process. And it facilitates it and makes it easier for people to come forward. And then it will support them during that reporting process and during their journey throughout the justice system. So what are your goals for Vesta? My goals for Vesta would really be that it becomes ubiquitous that it becomes something that is available to anybody that has experienced sexual violence and needs a place, a safe place, where they can process what happens to them. And from the legal system, I, uh, my goal is that it also becomes a trusted partner, part of the process and part of the legal investigative process that helps them really increase arrest rates in, and maybe even increase conviction rates and hopefully have an impact on society at large. Our guests underscored the importance of maintaining momentum in advancing a more nuanced understanding of sexual violence, one that is sensitive to lived experience and survivor-informed. As more people engage in these conversations, broadened definitions of justice are emerging. Recognizing this diversity among survivors is critical to the justice sector being able to provide responsive and meaningful advice, information, and options. Architects of Justice is created and produced by Jane Kim and me, Sabrina Dellen. 
Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please leave us a review. This podcast is supported by the Law Society of Ontario and the Law Foundation of Ontario. Architects of Justice is an initiative of TAG, the Action Group on Access to Justice. For resources and more information, visit theactiongroup.ca. Thanks to Farah Khan, Deepa Matu, and Lucretia Spaniello. Thank you.